in a collection of essays published in 1976 entitled Mortal Lessons. Author Richard Selzer recounts an experience he had some years before in his quiet suburban neighborhood. Selzer writes, Our garbage is collected early in the morning. Sometimes the bang of the cans and the grind of the city trucks awaken us before our time. We are resentful, mutter a few choice words into our pillows, and then go back to sleep. And on the morning of August 6th, the people of Woodside Avenue do just that. When at last they rise from their beds, dress themselves, eat breakfast, and leave their houses for work, they have forgotten, if they had ever known, that the garbage truck had passed earlier that morning. The event has vanished from their thoughts like a dream. They close their doors and descend to the pavement. It's midsummer. You measure the climate. Decide how you feel in relation to the heat and humidity. You walk toward the bus stop. Some of your neighbors are waiting there. It's all so familiar. But this morning on Woodside Avenue, things are not so familiar. All at once you step on something soft. You feel it with your foot. Even through your shoe, you have the sense of something unusual. It is a foreignness upon the pavement. Instinct pulls your foot away, recoiling in an awkward movement. You look down and you see it. It's a tiny, naked body. Its arms and legs flung apart. Its head thrown back. Its mouth agape. Its face serious. A bird, you think, fallen from its nest. But there is no nest here on Woodside. No bird so big. It must be rubber then, like a doll or a model. Perhaps a joke. Yes, that's it, a joke. And you bend to see, because you must. And it is no joke. Such a gray softness can be but one thing. It's a baby, and it's dead. You cover your mouth, then your eyes. You are fixed. Horror has found its opening and crawled into your mind, and you will never be the same. Now you look around and down the street. Another man has seen it too. My God, he whispers. There is a cry. Here's another, and another, and another. Later at the police station, the investigation is brisk and conclusive. It's the hospital director speaking. Fetuses accidentally got mixed up with the hospital garbage. They were picked up at approximately 8.15 by a sanitation truck. Somehow the plastic lab bag labeled hazardous material fell off the back of the truck and broke open. It is not known how the fetus has got in the orange plastic bag labeled hazardous material. It's a freak accident, he says, once in a lifetime. He grows pleasant, conversational, and tells you that by mistake, the fetuses got mixed up with other debris. Yes, he says other. Yes, he says debris. He has spent the entire day, he says, trying to figure out how it happened. He wants you to know that. Somehow it matters to him. He goes on. Aborted fetuses that weigh one pound or less are incinerated. Those weighing one over one pound are buried at the city cemetery. Ah, now you see. It is orderly. It is sensible. The world is not mad. This is still a civilized society. But just this once, you know it isn't. You saw and you know. Every once in a while in our clean, quiet neighborhoods, in our safe, comfortable society, we are confronted with reality. A veil is pulled back that reveals the horrors of man's depravity. 
For Richard Selzer, it was seeing his street littered with aborted babies. For others, it may be what happened back in 2015 as a series of undercover videos exposed America's largest abortion provider. An organization called the Center for Medical Progress recorded undercover conversations with executives at Planned Parenthood about the sale of aborted fetuses. Maybe you remember that. Planned Parenthood performs an average of 350,000 abortions annually. And it was made known through those videos that they have been profiting off of the sale of these babies, selling their body parts for medical research. Now, what was so significant about these conversations is not only is this illegal, but for decades now, one of the great lies of the abortion industry is that when a woman has an abortion, it is just a clump of cells. It's not a human being, it does not have value, and it is certainly not a person. And yet what we discovered with this undercover conversation is that These clumps of cells can be sold. Human hearts, human livers, human kidneys. Maybe what is being aborted is more than just a clump of cells. Their argument for the efficacy of such a practice is further obscured by the notion that abortion is a choice. They don't talk about what the action taking place is. They talk about choice. That sounds so lovely, doesn't it? Choice. I'm a huge fan of choice. I'm a huge fan of women having choices. But it is philosophically and ethically dishonest to obscure the act of abortion by shifting the focus towards a choice. You have to ask the important question, what is it that is being chosen? If you are standing at the kitchen sink and your son comes up behind you and says, can I kill this? The moral issue is not about a person's freedom to kill. The moral issue is about what it is that you want to kill. If it is a cockroach, yes, definitely. If it is the neighbor's cat, absolutely not. In the case of abortion, the question always has to be, what is being killed? Everyone knows that human beings grow in the belly of their mother, and they are always human, and at any point are they not. So you have sperm and egg meat, and you have 46 chromosomes present. 23 from mom, 23 from dad. These chromosomes contain DNA, which contain all of the information about you. A pre-programmed code what makes, is what makes you unique and unlike anyone else. So DNA are the blueprints of who you are. Eye color, hair color, height, body type, even certain personality traits, and there are no two alike. Now, if we as a people were ignorant about what goes on, in the development of a child, that would be one thing. But we are not. We know what, more about what happens in the gestation period of a pregnancy than any other culture in the history of the world. And the more the truth is known, the more the truth must be suppressed. Now, in light of the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade in recent weeks, I thought it would be a timely message to talk about why we, as Christians, must unequivocally oppose this act of abortion. Christians are to be compassionate. We are to love our neighbor as ourselves. And there is a hierarchy of moral requirement of you. So that means that you are to have compassion on your neighbor, but compassion on your neighbor does not mean aborting her child is an act of compassion or, or encouraging that action, I should say. Our neighbor is also the one in the womb. Now, this is not a 
strictly political message. This is not a message for a political party. As Christians, we always go back to the source and we want to say, what does the Bible teach on this? And that is what I want to bring to your attention today. I made it very simple. It's a very simple outline. Two points. The first is, when does human life begin? Very important question. And the second is, why is human life valuable? So, when does human life begin? The Bible is clear that God considers us persons from the time of our conception and not just the time of our birth. Psalm 139, I had Richard read that to sort of prepare our thinking in this. David is describing the sovereignty of God over all things. And among those things that God is sovereign over, he describes his formation in the womb of his mother. He says, Psalm 139.13, For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. That's a euphemism for the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So God is seen here as the master craftsman, He is the one pictured as forming and shaping little bodies. He sees the unformed substance. He forms the inward parts. He plans our days in advance. Notice also that David recognizes his personhood from the very beginning. He doesn't say, this clump of cells that eventually became me. He says, my frame... You knit me together. It was me who was formed by you. So in, in, in saying this, David is, is enlightening us that the person is more than even just the body. It's his body. It's his body that God was forming. So God is the one doing the forming. God did not just create the universe and then walk away like winding up an old grandfather clock and then just leaving it to tick for thousands of years. But rather, God is involved in all of the activities of life from the farthest star system all the way to the formation of cells in the body. Now, not only does God form us in the womb and consider us persons, but He has plans for us that He alone has predetermined. When Jeremiah was called to be a prophet, we read this in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He says, Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. So God's appointing of Jeremiah as a prophet was not decades after his life and he observed him for a while and thought, well, I think that's going to make for a great prophet. It says he had a plan for him before he even formed him in his mother's womb. It says he knew him. Now, this doesn't mean they had some relationship in eternity past like the Mormons teach. But this is God setting His love upon Jeremiah, His covenantal love. And even in the womb, Jeremiah had a name and Jeremiah had a plan in the mind of God. A purpose. Now, this is not the only time we learn of God having a purpose for someone from the womb. We also see this in Isaiah 49, verses one, or 49 verse 1. 
Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, He has spoken my name. So, all the way from the beginning. As far back as you can think of for Isaiah being a living thing, God says, that's Isaiah, and I have a plan for him. How about this one in Genesis? I just threw this in because I'm reading through Genesis, but I thought this was interesting. Genesis 25:23, the Lord says to Rebekah, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger. Now think about this. This is not only God's plan for Jacob and Esau, this is God's plan for their offspring and their offspring and their offspring. So God has a purpose for every person made in His image. Every child being formed in the womb, even from the earliest stages. And I think all of this pre-knowing and predestining are true of all people. Some had a special role in redemptive history like we see in the Bible, but all are important to God and all have a purpose in the mind of God. In other words, no one is disposable. And if a child does die because of a miscarriage, which is very common, those are God's things. But it is not our place to step in and terminate a pregnancy because we, uh, that is above our pay grade. We do not have the role or title of God. Now, a skeptic might say, well, that's all Old Testament and a lot of things have changed in the New. Okay. Let's talk about Saul of Tarsus. You remember him. Persecutor of the church. Opposing the will of God. He has a transformational experience on the road to Damascus as he hears and sees the Lord Jesus and he is converted. And Saul, who is turned Paul later on, as he recounts these events under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this in Galatians 1.15, But when He who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son to me. So Paul recognizes the plan that God had for him did not begin on the road to Damascus. As if God was searching through mankind and thought, you know who's going to be a really radical lover of Jesus? I'm going to use this guy Paul, that guy right there. No, this was God's plan from before his birth. He was always a person in the mind of God. That means his character his upbringing, all of his influences, good and evil, to make him this radical opposer of the church, all of that was also part of God's plan because God used all of those events to shape the person that Paul would be, the chief of sinners and the chief apostle. How about this one? Mary, the mother of Jesus, goes to visit Elizabeth, who is about six months pregnant at the time. And it says in Luke 1.41, When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. So here's John the Baptist as a baby in the womb, never seen the light of day, Reacting to the voice of Mary. Did you know that babies in their mother's womb recognize their mother's voice? They recognize their mother's voice and other people's voices. I believe it was our first pregnancy. We used to read books to the pregnant 
Mama, we used to read to Becca's belly because there was a baby in there and he could hear our voices. And so we would read books to him. Now, I think John, in the John the Baptist case, he had a, there was a supernatural thing going on there. But the point remains the same, that here is an unborn child, and God is at work. And even prior to this, if you look back some verses in uh, Luke 1.15, the angel visits Zechariah and says of John, He will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. Imagine that. A newborn baby filled with the Holy Spirit coming out of the womb. With God, all things are possible. Now I've heard objections and People saying, well, that's all fine and good, but you know what? There are birth defects. People are born with disorders and defects and deformities. And you're saying that God is forming them in the womb. So if logic is going to work together here, that must mean that God makes mistakes. But those are also the work of God. Think about this. If God is perfect, that means that if He makes something that is disfigured or deformed or disabled in any way, it must not be that He has made a mistake. It must be that He has a purpose for such a thing. Back in Exodus, when God calls Moses to be His spokesman, you remember Moses complaining that he's no spokesman. And he says, I don't talk really well. I love in the Hebrew it says, he's thick-tongued. And you know what God responded to him? Exodus 4.11, it says, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute, or deaf, or seeing, or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In other words, you can't complain to God about any of your shortcomings because God is the one who made you. And if Moses couldn't put a sentence together, uh, that was by the divine purpose of God. So we live in a fallen world and there are all kinds of problems that arise. There are birth defects and all the rest. And God is sovereign over all of those things too. This means that children born with disabilities are by His design. This also means that He has a purpose for them. And if you discover that your unborn child has a medical condition, does not mean it gives us the pass to kill that child. It just means, oh man, God is up to something here. God is going to be doing something in this. We don't know what it is yet but we're going to rely by faith on Him and trust that He's up to something good. It also means that such a child is not... It also means that such a child is as, <clears throat> is as valuable as a child that is born without any kinds of defects. They are all the purpose and plan of God. Someone might ask, what about children born out of unholy unions? What about children born out of wedlock? What about children born out of rape? Is God designing those people too? Does God have a plan for such pregnancies that are, that are the result of sin? What do you guys think? Does God have a plan for that? He does. Read any genealogy in the Bible. Go ahead, pick any of them. What are you going to see? You're going to see children born through instances of incest, adultery, polygamy. You're going to see children conceived through unions that were outside the revealed will of God. 
God says, don't do this, and they went and done it. Are those children important to God? Are those children made in God's image? Are those children knit together in the wombs of their mother by God? Yes, even children born by sinful circumstances have value. And this leads us to our second point. Why is human life valuable? Now, we live in an age of moral confusion. We live in an age where people do not want the truth of God governing their lives. It's like in Psalm 2. I think Mark preached on this last week. I wasn't here last week. Scripture reading. The people are saying, we, don't, we want to cast off these chains. They think God is putting them in bondage and putting all these restrictions on them. And they say, we don't want those. And so you have a morally confused culture when they reject the truth of God. And in their upside-down worldview, you have people with a muddled morality. They can't make sense of what is right and wrong. And oftentimes, they value the life of an animal more than they value the life of a human being. Maybe you remember some years ago, the news story of a killing, the killing of a lion named Cecil in Zimbabwe. Cecil was well known in the area. He was loved by locals. He was a tourist attraction. He was friendly as lions go, and he was even being researched by Oxford University. They were spent many years studying Cecil. So a big game hunter from Minnesota decides to go over there, and on an expedition he kills this lion, and the whole world went nuts about it. I couldn't believe how much media coverage this thing got, but especially on social media. If you were on social media, it was all over the place. Now, I am an animal lover. I am sad that this man killed this lion who was well-loved just so he could have another head hanging in his office. In fact, um, here's a picture of outside of his office. People were not too thrilled with him. They were calling for his death. He got death threats, of course. But here's where the moral confusion comes in. In a country which kills 3,000 human beings a day through abortion, it's a confusing moral claim based on a confused worldview. There's more outrage over a lion that was killed than a child being aborted in their neighborhood. And so you have a worldview that cries out for, against the injustice of a dead lion while at the same time crying out in support of the killing of a child. So there is moral confusion, that much is certain. But the question is, why is the life of a human being more valuable than the life of a lion? And the biblical answer always goes back to the fact that it is because of whose image we are made in. We are made in the image of God. Now, in our world, if you want to honor someone, you make a statue of that person. Isn't that true? You go to a university and they'll have a statue of their founder and say, oh, here's, here's our founder. You go, to a, you go to a baseball field and they'll have a statue of one of their greats, you know, swinging a bat or something. It's something that reflects their likeness and it's something, it's a way to honor them, right? So what God has done in man is made us in his image, male and female, and he commands us to go and fill the earth. And so it's like we're a bunch of living statues who go around the earth and we bring honor to our creator. We are image bearers of God. We reflect His likeness, we are made in His image, and we are to give Him glory. And because we are made in His image, 
we are the most valuable of any creature that was ever made. Think about that. You are more valuable to God than any of the angels. Any creature on the planet. Go down to Skid Row and find some destitute, homeless, drugged out, strung out person laying on the street and that person has more value to God than an angel. Why? Because we are made in the image of God and they are not. Nor are the lions, nor are any in the animal kingdom. So we are image bearers. We are living statues that go in the earth and give glory to our Creator. But we know that there's been a distortion of this because of sin. So we are deeply broken because of sin. We do not give glory to our Creator as we ought. But that does not change the fact that we have an intrinsic value because of whose image we are made in. This goes all the way back to the beginning. Genesis 1.27, it says, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So even a child born with serious defects has great value because of the God who made him, whose image He bears. He is the imprint of His Creator. Is that true with children out of wedlock? Yes. Is that true? A child conceived of rape? Yes. Is that true? A child born with birth defects? Yes. David again in Psalm 8, verses 5 and 6, he says, You have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings, that's angels, and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. And then David goes on to list all the things that man has dominion over. The birds and the, the, the cattle and the fish of the sea. All of it is under man's authority. Now, we have dominion over the animal kingdom and that has been abused because of sin. But it still does not negate the fact that we are intrinsically more valuable because God has crowned us with glory and honor by means of our design. 1 Corinthians 11.7, Paul says, For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. James 3.9 with our tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. James is pointing out a contradiction here. God has given us a tongue, and we bless God with it, and we curse our fellow man, and it should not be. Why? Because that is an image bearer of God. So we don't want to say on the one hand, oh God, we praise you, and then go around and, and, and curse all of his image bearers. There's a contradiction there. So, we are image bearers from the very beginning of our development. We do not become image bearers at some point in the gestation period. We do not become image bearers when we are passed through the birth canal. It is human all the way through. It is the design of God all the way through. Now, I'm going to shift gears just for a minute, and you're going to think, why is he talking about this now? But it's definitely related to this. Because we are image bearers of God, this is why God puts the highest price tag on human life and why we as Christians should also support the death penalty. Huh? You're just saying that humans are so valuable and now you're saying that humans should support the death penalty. Let me explain. If you've ever wondered why Christians who are pro-life are also pro-death penalty, this is why. God has put such a high price tag on human life to protect it. It's such a valuable thing 
that he says if anyone takes a life, that person has forfeited their life. In other words, that's the price you must pay if you destroy an image bearer of God. You are now forfeiting your own life. And he gives man the power to do that. All the way back in Genesis. Genesis 9.6, he says, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. Why? For God made man in his own image. So if you put a murderer in a cage for 25 years after he murders some innocent young woman, and after he serves his 25 years, he no longer has a debt to the state or anybody else, and he is set free, you are saying that woman's life was worth 25 years in a cage. So, that reduces the value of human life as if such a sentence can absolve such a heinous act of injustice. So the only viable punishment to protect the life that's made in the image of God is that you have this thing called capital punishment or the death penalty. But if you have a morally confused culture as we do, you have people who believe that the death penalty is evil and you have people who believe that abortion is good. The guilty are to be protected The innocent are to be put to death for the sins of their parents, and you have everything upside down. Now, many have described the culture in which we live as the culture of death. It's a fitting moniker because that which is esteemed in our culture destroys life. People do not want to have any sexual boundaries placed upon them, so they want to have the act of sex to be free, with whoever they want, and apart from any kind of covenantal commitment. And then, if that sex act produces offspring, as God has intended that act to do, they want to keep abortion legal so that the consequences of their so-called sexual freedom are intact and protected. And so really, if you look behind the curtain, the issue is, is about sexual depravity and the unwillingness to do it God's way. So you have a culture that is warring against life to protect their precious idol of sexual freedom. Add to this the proliferation of same-sex married couples who cannot by their very design reproduce because there's no life coming from those unions. And you have a culture that wars against life. You have a culture that is opposing life. I mean, think about this. Even from an evolutionary standpoint, let's say you are an atheist professor in some university and you teach evolution. You should be speaking out against both of these things because these go against human evolution. You're killing your offspring and then you're you're creating unions of people who can't have offspring? (laughs) That goes completely against Darwinian evolution. Now, if you want to see a culture self-destruct and be completely eradicated in a few generations, allow them to eliminate, eliminate a large segment of their population. The future, as we look into the unknown future, you know who the future belongs to? The future belongs to those who are having babies. So you have America, a kingdom, in God's big story of history. Kingdoms rise and fall all through history. Rise and fall, rise and fall. America's this little blip on this timeline in God's on God's stage, and we as a culture could abort ourselves into obsolescence. I mean, you have falling birth rates 
to where even the experts are saying this is not sustainable to maintain a nation. And so you're either going to have, I, I believe this could be an act of divine judgment against our nation because what God often does is give people over to their sins and if you want to eliminate yourselves, hey, we got 60 million people who don't exist because of this practice in our country. Or another way God might judge our nation is take our enemies and have them rise up against us. And so guess who are having all the babies in the world? You know who are having all the babies in, in the world? The culture, the people who are having more children than any other people? Muslims. Islam. What does Islam hate more than anything? They hate you. Western culture. They despise and oppose Western culture. They want to see us eradicated. And what if God's judgment comes upon our land in the form of giving us over to this evil so that our birth rates drop so much and the Muslim birth rates rise so much that it's not, you don't have to be a statistician to figure out what it's going to look like in 50 or 100 years from now. If you have American couples having fewer than two children per family on average and you have Muslim families having six to eight on average, it's no secret what's going to happen in 50 or 100 years from now. So it is to our own ruin as a people that this practice exists and this practice is so widespread. When abortion was first being sold to our nation, they said they wanted it to be safe and they wanted it to be rare. Safe, legal, and rare. There was some kind of slogan. Nowadays, it is without apology for whatever reason. All the way up. They want it all the way up. If a woman is having emotional turmoil in her last trimester and she does not want to carry the baby, people in our land want to say at any time, at any moment, up until it travels through the birth canal and then apparently it becomes a human being. Now, if God was to raise up enemies to destroy us for our sin, this would be nothing new. If you look at Israel's dark past, they too would offer up their children to pagan gods, and God judged them by giving them over to their enemies. Listen to how the psalmist laments this in Psalm 106. He's talking about his own nation. He says, They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their evil deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against His people, and He abhorred His heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Now, I am not comparing America to Israel. I am just drawing a comparison that God will judge a nation by letting enemies overtake them. And we have enemies, don't we? Now, many people call what we do progress. They look at us in our 21st century and say, we are progressive, this is progress. But there's nothing new under the sun. We are an idolatrous nation, just like ancient Israel. And this becomes the heart of the issue. The heart of the issue is idolatry. The heart of the issue is worshiping something other than God. Man rebels against God. He suppresses the truth of God. 
and he serves other gods in his place. And still today, children are offered in sacrifice, not to some stone idol, but to an idol nonetheless. The idol of convenience and financial prosperity, the idea that if you give up your child, your life will be better than if the child lived. And so you have 90, 98% of, of unwanted pregnancies that result in abortion being from unmarried couples. It's not because of the woman's in danger. It's not because of rape or incest or anything like that. Those are extremely rare, generally speaking. It is the majority of which you have a couple who have an unwanted pregnancy and they do not want to deal with the consequences of it. And so they think... If I keep this child, it's going to prevent me from fulfilling my dream. It's going to prevent me from earning a good living or it's going to prevent me from going to college or it's going to prevent me from whatever. And so the child is seen as a hindrance to prosperity. And it must be offered up, just like in the Old Testament. They offered up their sons and their daughters to idols so that they would prosper. Also upside-down thinking because the Bible says the opposite. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. So rather than children being a hindrance to human prosperity, God says they are a sign of it. Read through the Old Testament. Fertile wombs were a blessing. Barren wombs were perceived as a curse. But when a culture has rejected the light and is in the midst of moral darkness, it is confused about what is good. It sees the things that God calls a blessing as a curse And it sees the things that God calls a curse as a blessing. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. God says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live. Now, this is words to Israel for their blessing and their prosperity, but I think it could be applied to any people. If you follow the ways of God and you walk in His ways, it is the way of life, and if you follow your own desires, it is the way of death. And God says to us all, choose life. So, in conclusion, I'll sneak in a third point What can we do about it? What can we do about it? Number one, we can pray. What's happening in our culture with the death of the unborn is a spiritual matter. It is spiritual warfare. It is a matter of the mind. People are deceived they are following the course of this, of this world, the prince of the power of the air, Paul says in Ephesians 2. They are being deceived and they are on their way to destruction. And we can pray that God would send a revival to change the minds and open the eyes of the people so that they would see this practice for what it is. Secondly, we can give. We can give and support pregnancy centers. We can give to ministries that that exist to make women know that they have a choice in this matter. That abortion is not the only choice they have. That pregnancy centers provide support and they provide all kinds of help and access to to, uh, resources and all the rest. And so I know... We have given as a church to pregnancy centers in the past. My family and I do at least at the end of the year as a gift. We want to support ministries like that. We can vote. 
especially now that the Supreme Court has kicked this decision back to states, we can vote and stand up for the rights of unborn human beings, unborn Americans. So every election cycle that comes around, we can vote and we can vote that this be a practice that is abolished in our state. And you think, well, that's never going to happen in California. We don't know that. We don't know what the future holds. We, we have seen God in history send revivals and change the direction of a nation, and he could do it again, even the direction of a state. But the most important of all is that we must proclaim. What is it that we must proclaim? We must proclaim to men and women that there is forgiveness for this sin. We must proclaim that women who have had an abortion are not outside of the kingdom of God permanently. There is an opportunity to come in. They can turn, both men and women, men who have been participants in that decision. The, the arms of God are open to such people. There's forgiveness available to them. And this comes down to what we proclaim, which is, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That God has slain His own Son in place of sinners so that we can have the righteousness of God. And so women who are broken over this sin, women who have regret and grief and carry around this big weight can know that they can have that weight lifted and they can be forgiven and restored to God. All right, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank You that You forgive all sin and that there is no sin that anyone has committed that they cannot be forgiven for. And Lord, I, I don't know if abortion has touched any of these families in our church, Lord, but I just pray that Your peace would rest on them. I pray, Lord, we would not be persuaded by the arguments of this culture that do not love the truth. I pray, Lord, that we as a church, that Your church in this nation would stand on Your Word and not on the pleas of political parties or people who are in a very difficult situation where our heart of compassion wants to go toward them and, 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 and not stand on the Word of God. We want to be compassionate. We want to speak the truth in love. But Lord, we want to stand for what is righteous. Please help us, Lord. Help us to live in this life. Help us to swim against the tide that is so strongly against us in this day. And Lord, that we would love and practice the truth. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.